If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, this is Dave Musgrave, editor of BBC History Magazine, here once again to introduce you to our latest podcast. I'm joined by the deputy editor of the magazine, Sue Wingrove. Hello. And the section editor, Rob Attar. Hello. Now, the February issue of the magazine is, I hope, a great one. We've got the worst years in British history, Buster Crab and a Cold War cover-up, King Alfred, terrorism, Tudor jesters and First World War sportsmen. But before we go on to discuss some of those topics, I'll start off with my monthly chat with Sue, who's in charge of our book reviews section. So, Sue, what have you been reading this month? Well, this month I'm reading a book by James Ferguson called The Vitamin Murders. This is part history and part travelogue, and the journey that he takes is the journey through our post-war food industry. His wife is going to have a baby, so they start thinking about what to, you know, whether to go organic and all that kind of thing. And they find out some quite scary facts about the state of our food in Britain. But he's also looked back at the death in 1952, or the murder rather, of uh, the biochemist Sir Jack Drummond, who was brutally uh, murdered while camping in Provence. Now, Drummond was the government's scientific advisor during the Second World War, and he really was the brains behind the Ministry of Food's campaigns to get us all to eat more healthily. So he was a real pioneer. And in fact, he invented Drummond Mixture, which was a kind of porridge made up, which was distributed at the liberated concentration camps and saved thousands of lives. So he's a big character, but he had this mysterious death, and there have been various conspiracy theories about it ever since. So Ferguson investigates that and also tells us about his own findings about our food industry. So it's quite a fascinating book, actually, mm-hmm. with some quite scary facts to discover about our food. And one of these is that um, you're probably safer living in London 
London because there are so many pesticides in the countryside. So, um, <laughs> and also things like a modern supermarket bird has twice as much fat as its equivalent in 1940. So it's a slightly different look at history. That sounds enormously topical. Everyone's always talking about how the World War II ration diet was the most healthy one we've ever had. So does Ferguson go into details on that? He does, and apparently that is true. It's absolutely right. It was a healthy diet. It was a sort of simple diet, a healthy diet, lots of fresh homegrown food, people doing all the right things. And um, it's been downhill ever since, I'm afraid. Shame. Okay, so what's the lead review this month, though? Right, lead review is John Stuart Mill, Victorian firebrand by Richard Reeves. Now, Mill obviously was a big character in the Victorian period, known mainly for his works on liberty, and the other one was the subjection of women. He was committed to epic radical causes, such as the defence of personal liberty, and he supported the enfranchisement of women as well. So this is quite, it's, it's a huge book, and our reviewer goes into some detail about, well, really about Mill's reputation, because even at the time, although some thought he was a sort of intellectual giant, others thought he was, quote, a weather vane of faddish opinion. He was constantly sort of changing his angle, and, you know, he was he was really perhaps not as focused as some might have wanted him to be. But anyway, no doubt that he was, in fact, perhaps the most well-known Victorian intellectual, and he left 33 volumes of books, journals, letters and notes when he went, so he obviously did a lot of thinking. <laughs> mm. That's, it's a big book on an important figure, so uh, yes. that, that review is, is an important one for, for people to have a look at. So Indeed. What, what else have we got? Um, the Barefoot Emperor by Philip Marsden is about the mid-19th century Ethiopian emperor Chewadros II, um, who was a man obsessed with, gu- obsessed with guns, apparently. Now, he'd subdued rival princes, um, and he wanted to modernise his kingdom. He also wanted to lead his inhabitants out of the time of the judges, which was a period of conflict, um, which apparently, according to the scriptures, was the consequence of their past sins. So there was a lot at stake for poor old Chewadros. Um now, he wanted to get the support of, um, of Queen Victoria, um, but unfortunately she wasn't interested um, in helping him at all. Um, he imprisoned a few British emissaries, and of course then um, a punitive expedition uh, went off to um, sort him out. Sadly, there was a huge battle at um, Magdala, which is, was his mountain stronghold, um, and rather than submit to, cavity, to captivity, um, he committed suicide, which is really, really rather sad. And um, that's a big myth, apparently, in Ethiopia. Mm, I'm going to get hold of a copy of that book because I went to Ethiopia a couple of years ago, went trekking in the Simeon Mountains, and on one day I had a, a, a 12-hour history lesson from our guide, and he basically detailed the entire story of Ethiopia. And that particular emperor he, he really focused on, and it was clear that to Ethiopians today he's still seen as a very important historical figure and they're still very sore about the battle that he lost and it still seems a very crucial moment in Ethiopian history. So that sounds like a very interesting book. Indeed. But moving on, what else have we got? Moving on, the next book is all about pirates and it's called Pirates A History and it's basically a historical survey of piracy and privateering right from classical Greek and Roman times through the Vikings, the Elizabethans, the Barbary Corsairs, the Madagascar men, right up to modern piracy in the Moluccan Straits of Indonesia in recent years. So has Pirates of the Caribbean got it right? Sadly, no. They're much too nice. These real pirates were really terrible characters. He's unearthed some eye-watering accounts of atrocities. One victim, sharp reeds were stabbed into his fingers. 
He had a red-hot crown put on his head, and then he was impaled alive. So that was the more usual thing that happened if you were caught by pirates. That sounds extremely unpleasant. It was very unpleasant. What's the name of that book? That is Pirates A History by Tim Travers. Okay. And it's got lots of illustrations as well, which apparently is very good woodcuts and so forth. Righto. Okay, and the last book? The last book today is The Wildest Province, SOE in the Land of the Eagle. Now, SOE were the Special Operations Executive in the Second World War, and in this book, Roderick Bailey looks at the men who were sent to Albania, about 100 went over. The title comes from a quote from Byron, who called Albania the wildest province of Europe in the early 19th century. And even when the Second World War broke out, we still didn't know a huge amount about this country, apart from it was very mountainous and uh, quite a wild country. Indeed, in The 39 Steps, John Buchan's fictitious hero declares that Albania is the sort of place that might keep a man from yawning, with a typical British understatement. Anyway, this had lots of young men recruited by the SOE were raring to get out there and have lots of adventures, but sadly, again, it was much more horrible than um, fiction would suggest. Um, They had a terrible time. The country really was wild. They had to do forced marches in the snow. They had to sleep rough. It was really cold. They couldn't get any food, and they had various encounters with the Albanians, which were rather tricky. They left lots of diaries, which is great, because Bailey's been able to exploit those to give lots of detail to, um, to this book. So, yeah, that's, and again, another another great book. Mm. Doesn't sound like it's going to do much for the Albanian tourist board. Indeed, no. Well, it's, it's interesting that the, um, the, the chap who the SOE eventually supported was the LNC, the National Liberation Movement, which was headed by Enver Hoxher. And, of course, he went on to run the country until 1985, mm. when he died. So, obviously, there's been lots of changes since then, but it's apparently a beautiful country and hopefully not so wild as it used to be. Mm. OK, so all these books are reviewed in this month's issue? Indeed. Splendid. OK, well, thank you, Sue. OK, thank you. Now then, our lead feature this month in the magazine is, I hope, a thought-provoking one. I asked Derek Wilson, a historian who's written on subjects ranging from Holbein to the Astors, to make a choice on the worst years in British history. Now, that's quite a challenge, so I thought it best to give Derek the chance to justify his pick here. So, Derek, I've set you a tricky challenge in this month's issue of BBC History magazine. I've asked you to come up with the worst years in British history. Can you first of all tell me how about you go about choosing a worst year? It must be hard to come up with any criteria for that. I think the important thing is to consider why this is a valid exercise to do, or why a serious story bothers to do it. And I think it's an attempt to look at history horizontally instead of vertically. I think we're taught at school to think in terms of you know, cause, effect, result, you know, outline the causes of the First World War and so on. And that's fine. I mean, one, one, one can spend one's time analytically like that. But, of course, we experience life horizontally. And um, you, know, you switch on the television, you open a newspaper, you walk down the high street, and all sorts of things are happening at the same time. And it's this combination of things that are happening that give a mood to the, to the time that we're living in and, and flavour it. So I wanted to say, what was it really like to live in a, a certain year? And mm. what years were particularly unpleasant? Yeah, OK. I mean, that, that seems perfectly reasonable. So, so how then do you go about how do you How do you pick, pick those years? I think, first of all, I want to say that bad years, or, or good years for that matter, are not always what historians or popular legend identify. For example, um, 1941 saw the, the Blitz at its, at its worst. Mm. But, in fact, British spirits were high um, because we had our backs to the wall and you know, we were all the more determined to fight back. And you know, America entered the war in that year and so on. So it wasn't 
a year that was all that bleak. Mm. Then there are years, for example, which historians tell us were significant. Mm. Or 1588, uh, 1660. That doesn't give us a flavour of the time. So, for example, 1648 saw the resumption of the uh, of the Civil War, and that was a, a year I toyed with uh, for a moment because you know, everyone thought, oh, well, the Civil War's over, and all of a sudden the Scots invaded and, and, and uh, the king was negotiating with them, and it seemed that it was all starting all over again, which was obviously a very bad thing. But, of course, for royalists, it was a good thing. It gave them hope, and so on, so you couldn't sort of say, well, that was, for most British people, um, a bad year. Yeah. So you've, you've, been, you've been trying to identify the years which were universally bad across uh, across mm. Britain, the British Isles. Were, were there any other criteria that you were considering when you were thinking up your, your choice? I think it had to be something that affected a majority of people. Mm. And, and any, any year is, is good for some bad feathers. So for a run of, of bad harvest, for example, is very bad for people on, on the receiving end, but pretty good for those who are actually controlling the supply of food. You know, one man's dearth is another man's profit, mm. and so on. Um, so... I, what was it that actually you could say, well, in that year, it must have felt pretty grim. Wherever you were in England, there didn't seem to be much hope. Mm. Um, things seemed pretty disastrous, and there was no light at the end of the tunnel. Okay. I've asked you to give us the worst years in British history, which obviously mm. presents some problems in itself, because Britain is composed of constituent nations. How difficult was that to weave into the story? Yes, it is tricky because, you know, obviously the further you go back, the more the British Isles are divided into different nations and acting differently. So I, I tried to find things like, for example, the Black Death, which affected the whole country in irrespective of political divisions and so on. Yeah. But I may not have succeeded all the time, but uh, that's what I sort of set myself to do. Sure. And, of course, I've asked you to limit yourself to years, chronological years. That presents itself with other difficulties because history doesn't happily constrain itself to 12-month slots. So how hard was that to work into, into the picture? Yes, I, I've had to sort of put a caveat in, into the article that I'm explaining. As you just said, history doesn't fall, it falls into nice chronological units or nice calendar units. So I have interpreted the word year as being fairly fluid. So if something happened in November of one year, I've sort of happily tacked it on to the next year if that's the year I want to deal with and so on. But it's it's actually didn't get the mood of the whole thing. Yeah. So I mean just to take one example, uh, nineteen thirty seven was a pretty black year. Mm. In the previous December, Edward VIII abdicated. Now that obviously impacted on the mood of the nation. In the fact that it happened to be a few weeks into the previous year I've fudged over. Yeah. Okay. So you've come up with a list of the five years where the nation was maybe at its bleakest, where the national spirit was was at its lowest ebb. So let's let's just quickly run through those years that you've chosen. And and the first one in chronological order is AD sixty, when Rome has arrived in Britain, bringing with it all its civilizing influences. I suppose. So what particularly was bad about AD sixty? Well, that was the year that, um, actually, it's most famous for Boudicca's revolt, but I think even more important was what was happening at the same time, that Rome, the man who was representing Rome in Britain at the time, decided that he was going to stamp out this the whole sense of, of Britishness, the whole sense that uh, this was, say, not so much a nation, but a group of peoples with their own identity. He was going to stamp the identity of Rome on it. And so I think the big thing he did was uh, get rid of the Druids. And he, he sort of attacked the, the Druid centre 
in North Wales, and the Druids were those people who represented the best. They represented the laws, they represented the, the stories, the legends, the, the myths, the religion of the peoples. And uh, by crushing them and get rid of, getting rid of them, I think he, and then going on to smash Boudicca's revolt, he must have created a, a, an atmosphere in the country which you know, all is lost. We are crushed, we are defeated, we are now trodden under the heel of Rome. So it was a pretty grim time, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah. I suppose when you're talking about foreign invasions, you might have gone for, say, 1066 or something like that as another year when the national spirit was crushed. Did, did you consider 1066? Yes, I did, but I think there are a lot of sort of political complications in looking at that and who was right and who was wrong and you've got the Danes invading and you've got uh, the Normans invading and is there really any sense of a national English identity which is here being crushed I think I couldn't see a clear pattern there that's saying well no it's all over for us English Sure. And I suppose, of course, 1066 did, in fact, really hit most heavily on, on England, though obviously it did have repercussions yeah. across, across. So that would bring us back to that whole Britishness yeah. issue again. Yeah. But one thing which did affect the whole of Britain was the Black Death. And that yeah. brings us on to uh, your second year, 1349, the year mm. when the Black Death really did stalk right across Britain. So that's the most obvious reason I can think of for why you'd have picked that year. But but tell us, why do you think 1349 uh, fits into I think, the top five? You know, in any list of bad years, you know, the Black Death can't be ignored. Even though, of course, there were other bad plague years throughout history. I mean, that that has to go down as the worst, not just for the, for the appalling suffering that he included in that sort of villages being wiped out and so on, but also because of the disruption of the socio-economic system and things like, for example, the, the loss of faith. I think I see the loss of belief, the loss of faith, loss of confidence, whether it's in the religion or in the sort of common identity. Um, I see that as a, a very debilitating um, impact and what happened for example in, in 1349 was a lot of people lost faith in the church they although there were there were several clergy and monks and so on who stood by their posts and, and suffered and died looking after the, the sick and the dying uh, there were probably many more who just fled and this um, left a nasty, very nasty taste in people's mouths and i think not so long after that you get the, the spread of heresy in the country and this sort of sense of, sense of anti-clericalism and disillusionment with the church and I think that the Black Death gave that an enormous boost so you have that underlying sapping of British confidence in who we are, why we are, what we believe, what's real, what's true, what isn't. It's, it's interesting that um, that was the year that, that the King founded the Order of the Garter and so while people were dying all around he and his, his court were um, having great junketings at Windsor that's always struck me as a bit odd <laughs> and of course as you said that wasn't the only plague um, there were many other years when there were particularly virulent illnesses going around the country but you think that this was the very worst example of the plague in Britain oh I think so yes I mean, you've got the, the sweating sickness um, which sort of kept on hitting England in the, in the 16th century and then you've got the great plague of London as well in the 17th century but I think this was so widespread and its effects were so great, uh, it did sort of change the whole way society behaved. I mean, it's, it's pretty easy to see how, in that year, the people in Britain 
might have had difficulty seeing any particular future with you know their world basically falling apart around them and, and massive changes going on in society so that one it seems to me to be a very strong and obvious candidate the worst year. Whereas your next choice, 1536, is, is a bit harder to tackle. This, of course, Henry VIII is on the throne in this year, and we have religious turmoil. Is that the reason why you've gone for this one? Is the changes in religion and the problems that that causes, is that, is that why you're picking this year for the third candidate? Yes, I think so. I think there are two things. One, you have the religious discord, the fact that Henry is executing heretics and at the same time executing Catholics. So you've got that and the religious changes that he brings in really begin to bite down at parish levels, make changes in, in churches, changes in the kind of ceremonies that, that people have, changes in... There, there are two things. There are the fact that religious change was something that was really got down to grassroots level. Things that changed the way they ordered their, their lives from season to season, from Sunday to Sunday. Changes that changed the appearance of their churches. Of course, 1536 was the year when Henry began his attack on the monasteries. That had an enormously depressing effect upon people. So much so that at the end of the year, the North the North England rose in revolt, in a revolt, you know, the Pilgrimage of Grace, which came pretty close to uh, unseating Henry. So you've got that kind of dislocation of a society and what it believes in, and the, the conflict, the growing conflict between Protestant and Catholic. And on top of that, you've got the fear of tyranny. The realization, I think, by many people that this man was an absolute tyrant who was going to enforce his will on the people. And the one thing that he, well, I'll say the one thing that he failed to do, but the thing that he failed to do, and, and this year I think begins to show that he can't do it, is to tell people what they can believe. He can control the way people behave, he can punish them if they behave in ways that he doesn't think they ought to behave, but he really cannot tell people what they are to believe in their heart of hearts, and that he was trying to do. Um, and that really angered people and, and gave them a sense of, well, you know, our lives are no longer our own. It's it's quite hard for us now to see how strong feeling must have been then on these religious matters. I mean, mm -hmm. in, in our broadly secular society today, it is very difficult to get a grasp of that, isn't it? So how much of a wrench would it have been for the people in 1536 to have seen the, the Catholic traditions that they'd grown up with being dismantled? Would it, how, how much would that have affected their everyday lives? I think none of us like change. And we live in a, in a society that changes pretty rapidly, so perhaps you know, it doesn't affect us quite so much. I mean, I, I think of my inability to get my head around all that's happening in the world of um, internet communication and so on. You know, I, that's because as I'm getting older, I find the, the sheer pace of technical change difficult to cope with. You go back 500 years, and the pace of change is incredibly slower. So. You know, things are the same this year as they were last year, as they were the year before. Nothing much changes. And then you get a king coming in and saying, well, I'm taking over that monastery there. Get rid of that. You don't need the monks anymore. And I'm going to send my um, men into your church to see what you've got in the way of valuables. And if I take a fancy to them, I think I'll, I'll have them. And we're going to have new taxes. And... Uh, I don't much like these, these ceremonies that you're doing. It upset the whole tenor of their life. You know, life was very much built around the church's year. Um, but in a way, it isn't now, but it was then. And uh, so dislocation to 
these fundamentals of life was going to be terribly difficult. Mm. Okay, and dislocation again is is what was happening in 1812. Your next year, 1812. Of course, it seems to me on a on a purely military front that we were. Perhaps doing reasonably well in the Napoleonic Wars. You know, we'd, we'd won at Trafalgar a few years back, and a few years on, we will win at Waterloo. So, on that front, then surely 1812 is a curious year to choose. Yes, it is, isn't it? And I think almost um, one of the reasons I chose it is for the very reason uh, you just suggested that we know that things got better soon afterwards. But of course, people who are living in 1812 didn't know that. And uh, 1812, I suppose, if we think of the year at all, we think of Napoleon's um, abortive attempt to conquer Russia mm. and the appalling suffering of his grand army. But that wasn't known about in England until right at the very end of the year. So other things were happening in 1812 that I think people made people feel pretty depressed. Now, I think one reason I wanted to rise to the challenge of 1812 was it's always struck me that the novels of Jane Austen create this marvellous sort of um, relaxed and, and laid back and secure rural world of middle class England or middle and upper class England and when we think that that's yes that's how it was. But of course that is not how it was. This is this is fiction, this is romance, and all sorts of things were going on in that year 1812 that were incredibly disturbing. Bread prices following a run of bad harvest, bread, bread prices were the highest they had ever been. So Pure economic suffering on the people was was very great. The war had disrupted trade. This was leading to a great deal of unemployment as um, merchants and manufacturers cut down on their workforce or went over to using machines. You had the Luddite Rebellion, people going around smashing machines and in order to, as they thought, as they hoped, regain their livelihood. You had the government actually passing a law which made it a capital offence to smash machines. You know, bloodshed on an unprecedented scale in, in the, these revolts. Then uh, there are incidents such as, I suppose, the most appalling one, is the assassination of the Prime Minister, Spencer Percival. But what's particularly interesting about that is that though he was gunned down by a dissatisfied bankrupt. It wasn't felt through the country at large to be an appalling and horrifying act. People actually applauded it. And when um, Bellingham, the, the assassin, was marched to the scaffold, great crowds came out to cheer him. And they had to turn out the militia in, because they thought that there really might be serious trouble. So when you get a, fear, a mood like that in the country, that, you know, you're... you're Prime Minister, however much you may dislike Gordon Brown or, or Blair or whatever, if he was actually gunned down in the street, we would all be horrified, mm. likely so. I don't think many of us would sort of cheer the uh, the assassin to the, to the rafters. But in 1812, they did. That's the way they felt. There was this total dislocation of people with their political leaders. And then, of course, later on in the year, we went to war with America. And you know, the War of 1812 perfectly unnecessary war. But uh, you've spoken about the, the victory of Trafalgar, and you know, we were as proud that Britannia ruled the waves and we had the greatest navy in the world. All of a sudden, the United States of America was defeating us at sea and scoring victories over our ships, and we were not looking at all like uh, Victoria Britannia. So all these things were denting the sense of national well-being. So it's a pretty bad year, I think. So as you point out, in 1812, people of Britain 
didn't foresee that in 1815 they'd have a great military triumph and would win that particular contest. But in your final choice, 1937, similarly, surely you could say that the people of Britain couldn't foresee the terrible events that were about to come and hit them with the Second World War. So, so why choose 1937 as your last year? I think 1937 is the year in which people had hoped they had come through the worst of the Depression. Behind them there was this appalling war-to-end wars of 1914-18 and, and, and the, the Depression which followed it and the appalling unemployment. People began to feel that, you know, hopefully that was behind them. And then all of a sudden it wasn't because on the international scene, you have the failure of the League of Nations, uh, countries like Germany and Italy and, and Japan walking out of the League of Nations. So these aggressive states you know, simply can't be kept under control by international law. You've got government reluctantly having to divert money away from national recovery into rearmament, building uh, warships, spitfires, and most horrifically of all, gas masks. So there's this sense that perhaps things are not going to get better. And then just in the end of that previous year, 1936, two events happened which have to seem in some ways symbolic. One I've already referred to was the abdication of Edward VIII, which was a I think a great shock to a lot of people, whichever side of the fence they happened to, to come on. Um, it was a, a, a blow to sort of national pride and self-confidence. And also the burning of the Crystal Palace, that monument to great economic supremacy of the 19th century and that thing which people looked at as being, yes, a symbol of our economic leadership and greatness burnt to the ground. So you get things like that happening. Then also you have the fact that unemployment, although it had been gradually falling, suddenly stopped and started going up again. So you have things like the Jarrow March, where the shipbuilders of, of Jarrow marched all the way down to London to be met by cheering and supportive crowds and to present their problems to the government and, and to tell the government that in our town, 68% of the people are unemployed. Then as people try to grapple with these these problems of um, natural justice, of um, employment, and decent living standards for everybody and so on, people began to look to the continent and see ways in which other governments were trying to cope with similar problems. And they saw the fascists in Italy and Spain and in Germany, and they saw the communists in Russia putting forward philosophies that were abhorrent and yet it seemed that perhaps these were the only ways in which our problems could be solved by these draconian policies pursued by people like um, Hitler and, and Franco in Spain and you know, so a number of people, something like 2,000 people I think actually went to fight in Spain in the Spanish Civil War to show their solidarity with the, with the workers. So you've got at every level from the most mundane level of people's prosperity or lack of prosperity, poverty, suffering, right to the ideological level of, um, of how we reorder society, you've got this confusion. And over it, the sense, overall the sense that heaven knows where we are drifting back towards what we always thought was going to be quite impossible, that the war to end all wars was not in fact going to be the war to end wars. We were being sucked into another similar conflagration and that must have been pretty depressing yeah 
Absolutely. I mean, you've, you've outlined a, a pretty grim set of circumstances there. So, Derek, having gone through this exercise and chosen these five particularly bleak years, I wonder if I can uh, ask you as a historian to consider where we are today. I mean, if you were of a, a negative bent looking forward to 2008, you could say with climate change, global terrorism and, and credit crunch, that the year ahead is not looking too rosy itself. Where would this year sit in, in our pantheon of worst years? Do you, do you see it as being anything like any of these situations we've, we've outlined already? I think society is much more complicated now, and uh, we don't have those in this country at any rate, those um, vast distinctions of wealth that um, existed in, in previous ages. So we have things like a health service and an education system and so on that, that people can actually tap into. But um, life is more complicated, isn't it? And, and I can't see that um, as we go into this, this new year, that there are those brooding discontents, those brooding problems of, of real importance that span the whole of society. And there are going to be a number of people, I think, probably trapped in negative equity with, as the prices of their properties fall. You know, that's sad. There are going to be you know, people who, who suffer from various aspects of the way our society is regulated, but I think nothing on the on the same sort of scale as some of these other years I've tried to indicate. Okay. I don't want to end on a, on a desperately negative note, so <laughs> presumably we could do this exercise for the best years as well, could we? Yeah, I'm sure we could. I think it's more difficult. In, in some ways, because people are much more prone to grumble than they are to put out the flags and the bunting. You know, we're always aware of things that could be better and, and things that are, are pretty grim. And I aren't, it's not very often that we sit back and say, how wonderful life it is and how great it is to be British and why, and uh, isn't life great? Um, but I can think of a few years when it felt pretty good to be British. OK. We may well come back to that later in the year in BBC History magazine. But for now, Derek Olson, thank you very much for uh, those five choices for the worst year in British history. My pleasure. So you can read more on that feature in this month's magazine. Next up, my colleague Rob Attar has been finding out about a curious incident from the Cold War. Rob, what's the story? Yes, we have. It's Buster Crab, who was a Second World War frogman, who actually made quite a name for himself in the war, but then he tried to repeat the trick about ten years later and it didn't end so well. He was employed by the British Secret Services to spy on a Russian ship that was docked in Portsmouth Harbour because the Soviets were over here for a conference. And he went under the water in April 1956, and he didn't return. Later on, his body did emerge about a year later, but for a time, no one knew what happened to him. And they couldn't really do a full-scale search for him because they didn't want to alert anyone to what they'd done. So... The whole thing was kind of covered up in a really haphazard fashion. And who have you been interviewing about this? Michael Goodman, who's at King's College, who's been doing quite a lot of research about Buster Crab. And he actually's got quite interesting views on the subject. He doesn't agree, for instance, with the recent news claim by a former Soviet sailor who claimed he'd actually murdered Buster Crab. He says that's not true. It's, well, very unlikely to be true, and that he believes that Buster Crab was just out of shape. Should okay. <laughs> dive, really. Right. Well, I mean, out of shape... It's quite a difficult mission to do this underwater for two hours. Apparently he'd been on the booze the night before as well, which isn't the best preparation. He was a bit worse aware perhaps, and he couldn't handle the dive and ended up ended up drowning possibly. Great. Well, let's hear what Michael Goodman's got to say about that. The story here begins in April 1956 in Portsmouth Harbour, where yeah. um, Buster Crab, who's a Second World War diver, 
undertakes a mission to spy on the so- Soviet ship, which in itself, that wasn't that unusual, was it, at the time? It wasn't. Underwater espionage was something that had been going on for a number of years. It occurred during the Second World War, and I think it was probably assumed that when Russian or British ships went to other ports, that there would be divers going underneath and looking at the holes of the ships. So it was only really when he disappeared that the problems began to emerge. I think that's what comes out from the documents. It was a slightly different case to others because of the political significance of the visit of the Soviet leaders. The underwater espionage itself was, was nothing new, but I think it was the political context that made this a slightly different case, and that's why permission was sought, as it should have been, but, but permission was denied on this case, whereas it had been approved in previous instances. But if the government turned down the request, then how come it still went ahead? That's something that's not entirely clear from the documents still because it's very difficult to follow the paper trail from the the request going up to the the Prime Minister and the Foreign Secretary and then how that information was filtered back down. What is clear is that it was a naval requirement that the Soviet ships were inspected and that responsibility for the operation then fell on to MI6 to actually conduct the espionage and go under the ship. And it was the Navy that sought permission from the Prime Minister and it was the Navy who, it would seem, were informed that the Prime Minister's approval hadn't been granted. But how that information then went from the Navy to MI6 is not not at all clear. Whether it was a decision by the Navy not to inform MI6 or whether the, the lines of communication got blurred, we really don't know. What also is significant here is that when the Foreign Office figure attached to MI6, whose job it was, or part of whose job it was, to check that responsibility had been approved, his father had died that morning so that when he was trying to clear up his paperwork to go off and sort out the funeral and stuff, this request landed on his desk and he assumed it had been given permission because it was an admiralty request and so it was just given the the green light to go ahead. There was a lack of communication somewhere and that caused the mission to go ahead against the government's will. Yeah, that seems to be the case. It's it's not clear whether it was deliberate or whether it was bad lines of communication that led to this, though. That, that's one of the areas that still hasn't been cleared up by the documents documentary released last year. So when he, was, he disappeared, how did MI6 react to that? Well, again, that's something we don't know. MI6 haven't released any documents whatsoever on the case. And, and the problem is when you look at this, it's one of those Cold War uh, examples where there's a huge amount of stuff that's been written. Most of it's not very good. Most of it's not based on any documentary releases. Most of it's based on hearsay and, and, and conspiracy almost. So we really don't know how MI6 reacted. What we do know is that the person from MI6 who was with Crab when he actually undertook the dive, they, they had a very cursory search, didn't find anything, and rang back and sought permission about what to do next, really. And they deliberately did not conduct a full-scale search because they didn't want the Russians to be aware that someone had gone missing, that something had gone amiss, and that they were searching for someone. So it wasn't announced by either the Admiralty or MI6 that Buster Crab had gone missing? No, not at the time. It, and it seems, actually, that had the media not got wind of the case, actually it would have been hushed up and no one would ever have known. The problem was that some details did emerge when the Russians informed their British counterparts. The media found out, and they went and they found the hotel that Crabbe and his compatriot had stayed in the previous night. And uh, stupidly, perhaps one of the biggest mistakes of this, they'd signed in in their own names. A police sergeant or or some police figure was sent along, uh, and he actually ripped out the pages which had these two figures' names in from the guest book at the hotel. And as you can imagine, the media reaction to this was enormous. It just increased concerns about a cover-up and what had really gone on. And how did the government react to the media allegations? It seems like there were big problems within Whitehall. The, the Admiralty and MI6 seem to have known 
pretty quickly that something had gone wrong and that the media had got wind of the affair. But they deliberately did not inform the Prime Minister, the Foreign Minister, various other senior figures to start it. They tried to hush it up. When it became clear that something would have to be said, the Admiralty were told to um, assume responsibility. And we should probably remember at this time that the Secret Intelligence Service didn't exist, the intelligence agencies themselves didn't exist, there was no official mention of them. Uh, and so they couldn't accept responsibility for something if they didn't exist. And I think in addition, again, you have to bear in mind the political context here, that this was a goodwill mission, that it was an attempt to repair relations between the UK and Soviet Union. So anything, anything with any kind of intelligence angle would have been seen very badly. And so if it was seen as a naval mission, which indeed was the, uh, the story put out by the Admiralty, then that would have put things in a slightly different context. And then it got further complicated a year later or so when his body actually did appear, or part of his body did, in Chichester Harbour, I think. Yeah, that's right. The, the body was washed up, um, found by a couple of fishermen who told the relevant authorities... And it became clear fairly quickly, I think, that the body probably was Crabs. He was the only frogman who'd gone missing in the nearby area. I think it's something like 11 miles apart, so it'd still gone a fair way away from Portsmouth Harbour. And it was minus its head and its hands, and that was the story that had been put out at the time. And this led to the conspiracy theorists saying, well, because there are no distinguishing features left on the body, it could be anyone's. Actually, we now know from the coroner's file having been released, that it, it was actually the top half, the entire top half of the torso missing. So there was no head, no hands, no, no chest, etc., etc. But there was still enough to be able to identify the body. And, and Crab had been quite a short man. He'd had very small feet. He had a condition of the big toe, a strange condition where it kind of curled around. He had several scars on his legs. And all of these were consistent with the body. So actually, the chances are it almost certainly was Crab. What we don't necessarily know is actually what did happen to him, because recently there was a story in the news that a Russian sailor said he'd actually killed him. I mean, do you think that's likely to have happened? There's no reason why he couldn't have been killed by a Russian, but I think the chances are he probably wasn't. I think the Russians, even if they'd have found a frogman inspecting their ship, because it happened in the past, because it was not a new thing, frogman inspecting ships, I think it's very unlikely they would have killed him. And again, you need to think of the political context. Had it been discovered that this frogman had been executed by the Russians, whether he'd been on an intelligence mission or otherwise, then it would have inflamed the situation. So I think it's very unlikely he was killed by the Russians. It's much more likely that he died of natural causes and then was probably cut in half by a propeller, hence the remains that were found. As you say in the article, he wasn't really in the best shape, was he, when he undertook this dive? No, see, by all accounts, it seems that he was uh, asthmatic, he was overweight, drank too much, smoked too much, and really this mission was not something he should have done. It's, I think by all accounts it was a fairly routine diving mission, but the, but the fact is he wasn't in the best shape possible. Uh, various sources say how the previous night he'd gone out on a bit of a drinking binge and had drunk too much, so it seems like he probably shouldn't have been chosen. I mean, he was chosen because he'd done similar missions in the past, and he'd done those as well. But it seems like he perhaps wasn't the best choice in hindsight. And what was the impact of the Buster Crab affair? Did, did heads roll afterwards? Did MI6 get reformed? Yes, MI6 really at that time had been seen as a, really as a sort of loose organisation. The Prime Minister himself was very concerned about what they did and he would talk afterwards about the schoolboy antics of the secret services. As a result of it, the head of MI6 was forced to leave office and um, in his place the, the Director General from MI5 was put in place and that's, that's kind of unprecedented before or since where, where one of the 
the directors has gone from one agency to another. In addition, the first sea lord was removed from office about a month or so afterwards, so Head certainly did roll, and, and afterwards more accountability was put into place in the intelligence services and, and more responsibility for operations going on. And did this affect um, Soviet-British relations? It doesn't seem that it did. I think the Russians, although they complained to the British about it, don't seem to have actually, it doesn't seem to have affected things whatsoever. I mean, subsequent events would change relations again, of course. But I think it probably didn't change it. And I think to an extent that's partly because of the intelligence relationship that went on under the surface. That's not to say they were allies, but they understood that what both sides were doing. On a political context, I think it probably didn't really change very much at all. And, and actually, I think the media campaign really has blown it out of the water and it was never as big then as we might consider it to be now. And do you think there's still more that can come out about the Buster Crab affair? Are there more documents that are due to be released at any point? As far as I'm aware, there's not more that's due to be released, but I think on, on the UK side, there's more to be known about how the operation was planned in the sense, how did the Admiralty tell MI6 they needed this operation? How did MI6 plan it? Why did they choose to crab? And I think there's probably more to be released as to the cover-up. We know that the Admiralty were forced to take charge, but we have no information whatsoever from MI6's side. We don't know how they felt about it. We don't know how the chain of command worked in that organisation. We don't, we, we don't know yet about the impact of it on MI6, how demoralising it was, how the increased accountability that took place afterwards, how that affected future operations. So I think there's more to be released. I think on the Russian side, we still really don't know officially what happened. I mean, this sailor who made claims at the end of last year, we have no way of proving that one way or another. Various other claims have come out over the past decade or so about Russians having seen this problem and swimming around and stuff. And I think there's more to be released. So we still don't know the full story, but certainly it's a lot clearer now than it was a year or two ago. Buster Crabbe's own personal tragedy seems to have been overshadowed, really, by all the sort of wider machinations. Did his family feel bad about what had happened, about the fact that he was kind of a pawn in this Cold War game? We, we don't know too much about the family's reaction. I mean, obviously, they, you know, it was, a, it was a sad event. I don't think they knew much about what Crabbe was doing. He, he was estranged from his wife. I don't know how close he was to his mother. I'm not sure he had any children. So not, not too clear about that. I mean, perhaps the saddest thing, of course, is that Crabbe, who, who did very good work during the Second World War, he was awarded the George Medal and, and later an OBE for his work, has really been overshadowed by his death and disappearance. It's a shame because I think he should be recognised for his achievements for his Second World War work and really for his mind-clearing and diving work. And unfortunately, that's not how he'll ever be remembered. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest 
Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. So that's Michael Goodman on Buster Crab. Now, finally, I invited Professor Mary Beard to be the latest historian to join us in our time machine. Mary is one of the most incisive classical historians working today, so I was very interested to find out which year she'd most like to go back to if she had the chance. Hi, Mary. So if I was to invite you into our BBC History magazine time machine, which year would you like to go back to? Well, I am going to head back 2,000 years, and I'm going to go back to 17 AD. Right. I'm going to stick out like a sore thumb, I know. (laughs) (laughs) But I want to get a look at the Roman Empire close to. Right, so where specifically do we want to go in 1780? I'm going to go to Rome. Okay. In fact, I've got an even more specific target than that. I am going to head towards the 26th of May. Right. (laughs) Because there's a fantastic ceremony going on in the city of Rome uh, on the 26th of May, which I want to look at for myself. Okay, so so what's that? What's happening then? Well, what's happening then is uh, the young Prince Germanicus, mm-hmm. gorgeous, glamorous young prince, has been fighting the Germans for a few years yep. up in the north, much to the chagrin, in a way, of his uncle, the Emperor Tiberius, who's a grumpy old thing. Right. And Tiberius is getting extremely fed up with Germanicus's PR machine. Okay. And because he's getting so fed up of this, with Germanicus turning these kind of mini-victories, terribly reminiscent of what we're doing today, turning his uh, mini-victories into great ones, he decides the only way to solve this is to get the young kid back and to say, no, 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 let us celebrate your fantastic victories with a marvellous triumphal celebration. You've been so good. We're going to celebrate these like we have celebrated Roman victory uh, since the time of Romulus with a great parade through the city. Now, Tiberius' motives here are pretty suspect. What he's wanting to do is to draw a line under this boy's campaigning. And so he's using the triumph as a bit of a a kind of um, a clever device. But still, so what he's doing, he's going to host a celebration. (laughs) It happens on the 26th of May. Yep. Uh, and everybody's there, the whole of the Roman people are there, as many as could get there, you know, watching. It is a glorious occasion, so we are told, except, of course, by the cynical Roman historians who think, oh, something nasty going on here, this is all a bit of a sham. <laughs> this is not a real victory, this is a triumph instead of a victory. Yeah. And that is where I want to go. Shall I tell you why? Yes. I want to go and see this triumph, because it actually... Although I've been brought up, I suppose, as a historian, to think it's really a bit naff to say, uh, I'd really like to know what it was like, you know, that that was a bit sort of crude and naive. Actually, I'm really, you know, the one thing I'd like to do more than anything else, in a way, is find out what Rome was like in the Roman Empire. And I'd also like to find out what 
this triumphal ceremony was like. Because I've worked on Roman triumphs now for about six years, and I've worked on looking at how they were imaged and how they were pictured in sculpture and on silver cups, how they were written up by Romans to make them marvellous fantastic, wonderful celebrations in which the whole of the Roman Empire was on display in the city. But I want to know what they were really like if you were there. You know, Because we've all been to carnivals and, and coronations and things which have fantastically good PR. But when you go, it's all a bit tawdry. Yeah. You know, the silver coach is never quite as nice as the silver coaches in writing. You know? sure, sure. So I want to go and have a look at what this ceremony is actually like yeah. and whether all the marvellous displays they're supposed to have. You know, here is a fantastic model of the country we have conquered. With it all looked a bit amateur dramatic. And, and do you have an inkling of what what it might have been? What, it, what do you what do you think now before we, before we get in the time machine? What do you think? Well, you I'm torn. You see, my problem is that I I sort of because I'm a curmudgeonly old soul in some ways. Hmm. I want it to be a bit of a disappointment. <laughs> right. I, you know, I want to be able to say, Gosh, look how the Romans wrote it all up, you know, to make it brilliant. But actually, if you went, you know, you could see that it was all a bit sort of stitched together in the back room, and you know, all this silver was, you know, not quite as much as they said, and the gold was a bit tawdry and all that. I'd like to be able to be a curmudgeon but the other half of me would really like it to be as wonderful as they say so I'm going to win either way because either I shall say well I told you so it isn't as good <laughs> yeah. or I shall uh, you know have this amazing experience of being at the city of Rome's greatest celebration yeah. that you could ever launch so, so I'm happy you know, whichever way it comes out I'm going to be pleased so, so when we get back there, what historical sort of arguments are we going to settle? Are, are, do do you think that um, classical historians at the moment have got the wrong view of triumphs, or have they kind of just not not got a, a, a view of triumphs at all, really? What? Well, I think that they've been a bit taken in. I think yep. one thing they do is they think, "Gosh, you know, what a what a nasty militaristic display." Uh, how imperialist the Romans were. This is absolutely the you know, the ultimate celebration of Roman imperialism. Yep. But on the other hand. They're also a bit naive, I think, when they read all this stuff. They think, gosh, how amazing, you know, you know not 5,000 kilograms of gold bullion, you know, how amazing. And they're a bit, I think they're a bit gullible. Yeah. So I want to see if uh, the triumph on the ground is a very long way from the triumph that we read about in ancient texts. And that is kind of more important than just being about the ceremony. Yeah. It's about how we decide to evaluate what Romans said about themselves. You know, it goes, it goes to, uh, it takes you into things like gladiators. You know, we think, God, how amazing those Roman uh, gladiatorial contests must be. You know, how many lions, how disgusting, but certainly, you know, very impressive. And I've always thought that the Romans were very, very good at writing themselves up. Yeah. And possibly on the ground, you know, the mangy lions fighting a couple of gladiators wouldn't have been impressive as we like to think. <laughs> so, so was the, was the uh, was Germanicus's triumph? Was this a particularly notable triumph? Did Tiberius really sort of pull all the stops out for this one? Well, poor man, he must have pulled out the stops because it had to. You know, it was a triumph that was a sham. Yeah. So, and all shams are always better than the real thing in a way because you have to really do it well. Yeah. Uh, and so he's got, you know, he has got. Uh, loads and loads of stuff yep. there, uh, particularly um, um, he got spoils, he got 
you know, things that are brought back from the Germans. He's got captives, really exotic and glamorous German captives. Yeah. But he's got amazing replicas. He's very good at sort of getting um, getting a kind of, you know, the PR spin done quite well here. He's got replicas of mountains and replicas of rivers and drawings of the battles that Germanicus had. Yeah. And, you know, it's quite good. If you have to think of people in Rome and, you know, they haven't got the telly, so... They when 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 they're talking about what's going on on the frontiers, you know they can't picture it. And one of the things that's going on here, obviously, is an attempt to let the Roman people be able to imagine what Germany is like. Yeah. That itself would be interesting. I bet they had a very wild and woolly view of what Germany was like. Yeah, yeah. Um, how how had um, Germanicus been doing in Germany then? Because because this AD seventeen, that's um, that's not too long after the, the, the famous Lost Legion. Event, uh, that's it? right. Well, yeah. actually, he'd visited the site of the Lost Legion. Yep. <laughs> um, and he'd been not doing badly, you know, but he hadn't been doing half as well as the Roman people were rather thinking that he had. And actually, the key uh, rebel leader, you know, the rogue king, the, yep. the uh, you know, the Osama bin Laden of the German world, yep. was still in his cave somewhere, just like Osama bin Laden is today. Right. Um, and so, you know, although you know, there, there are wonderful parallels with now, actually, because although, of course, he was being very, very upbeat and getting a lot of, um, a, a, you know, a lot of good publicity that Tiberius, his uncle, couldn't bear, yep. in fact, you know, the war was not over and, you know, big rebel king was not actually captured yep so what happened to germanicus after this did he did he go on to, to great things well sadly of course you know what what happens to princes who get above themselves well they're taken down a peg or two yeah more than that in the case of germanicus he goes out east and within two years he's dead right and the story is that he has been poisoned uh by the governor uh, of the province of Syria, where he goes with the connivance of his uncle Tiberius. Right. So, you know, you can try and bring the guy back, give him a great triumph, and hope he'll draw a line under his success. But if you're a really jealous guy, that's not going to work. So, actually, in the end, it's the final solution, I'm afraid. It's sure. poison, right. and there was rumours of witchcraft and oh. nasty things. Poor old Germanicus. So, Germanicus comes out of this badly. I think everybody <laughs> comes out of this story badly, anyway. <laughs> so, so, back to the time machine. So, we, so we go back to, go to, um, to 17 AD. Um, and who, who do you actually want to meet if we go back there? Is it, is it Germanicus or Tiberius, or is there someone else you'd really like to meet? No, I think, you know... We meet too many men in Roman history altogether, yeah. so I am going to go for the wife of the rebel leader, an amazing woman who Germanicus has managed to get his hands on, yeah. and she's called Tuznelda. Right. And Tuznelda is there with her little son, who's called Tumelicus. Yeah. Now, I want to write to meet her for various reasons. Uh, one is... Now, as I said, I've been working on the Triumph for ages now, and the one thing that is really, really frustrating um, about the procession is that you have loads and loads of Roman uh, um, uh, accounts of yeah. it, but you never hear about it from the point of view of the victim. Yep. You never get, you never get the conquered people story of what it was like to be in the triumph. Sure. And so I want to see, you know, I want to ask her, you know, what he actually felt like 
being paraded through the streets of Rome with the people cheering or jeering or yeah. whatever. Would she, would she have been in a cage or how was she? How was she? Well, we don't know. Um, we have some pictures. They're never in cages in our pictures, but they are chained to chariots sometimes, right. and sometimes they're just walking. Yeah. And of course, there's something kind of quite odd happens, and this is really why I want to talk to her actually, because. Roman writers are smart about this, and although they are pretty jingoistic in our terms about how the triumph works, they're also well aware that there's a kind of double whammy going on here, and that they have lots of stories about the triumph in a funny way going wrong, because instead of looking at, say, Germanicus here, or in any of these triumphing generals who've, who've scored these great Roman victories, they tell stories of the crowd becoming more interested in the captives than they are in the generals. So the victim steals the show. Oh, really? Uh, that's always a problem for the yeah. Romans. You know, who are you going to look at? And there are stories of uh, the crowd looking at the kids in the procession who've been captured uh, by you know, our valiant Roman general and bursting into tears. Right. And, uh, in a sense, the, the captive uh, nastily, from the Roman point of view, upstaging the general. And I kind of want to find out whether Tuznel has got any sense of that going on. You yeah. know, that, that actually, in a funny way, if she holds her head up and is dramatically unbowed, etc., yeah. etc., et um, then she might actually have been the star. And that's certainly what happens when... Uh, German nationalists tell the story of this sure. thousands of years, well, 2,000 years later. Yeah. In the late 19th century, uh, when the Germans start to picture this triumph against the Germans, uh, you know, the new nation-state of Germany, they don't make Germanicus the hero, they make Tuznelda the hero. Right. And I want to find out whether Tuznelda felt she was a hero in all this. Um, do, do we know much more about Tuznelda? What happened to her after? Did she have absolutely no idea? No idea. <laughs> <laughs> what language which she have spoken if we were to start trying to talk to her. Well, I'm afraid that is a bit of a problem. I mean, I could try with my best O-level German. Yeah. Uh, and, well, let's hope we'd get on. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it's, it's quite hard to know what these people spoke because there's another wonderful account of uh, another Roman emperor trying to stage a triumph over the Germans. Um, and it's an equally fake triumph because you know, Romans went in for fake as well as real triumph. Um, and he hasn't got any captives. Right. So what he decides to do is to uh, get some uh, Gauls, dye their hair blonde to make them look German, and then teach them German. So uh, that shows me that if I went back in time, you know, a few days before, a few weeks before May, yeah. I would probably be able to find a German teacher. <laughs> Certainly the Emperor Caligula thought he could find a German teacher. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, that's a fantastic master of, of Roman spin there that we'd like to meet. So, Professor Mary Beard, thank you very much for joining us in our time machine. Uh, it's been a very interesting discussion on, on what might have happened in AD 17. Great to be able to go. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> the Roman Triumph by Mary Beard is published by Harvard University Press. Well, that's all for this month. Remember that BBC History magazine is on sale in all good news agents in the UK, and that's just £3.60. The February issue is in the shops from Tuesday the 29th of January, or you can subscribe. UK podcast listeners can subscribe today for just £16.20 every six issues. That's 25% off the cover price. 
Order online at www.subscribeonline.co.uk forward slash history magazine, quoting pod 07. Alternatively, call our hotline on 0844-844-0250. Hope you'll listen next month for an insight into British racism and Edward I, among other things.